Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. Started in 1882, 
And it got passed on a year later to this architect named Antonio Gaudi. If you've ever called something that you thought was ugly, that's Gaudi. Um, it's from his name. I think personally that this church is a gorgeous, probably the most gorgeous piece of architecture I've ever set foot in. It is breathtaking. It just goes up and up and up. And the thing about it, when it was trained, it's still under construction. Like all of these hundred or so years later, 142 years later, uh, after the death of Gaudi, his plans are still underway with different architects, different builders, mind you, um, and it's still under construction. Now, we live in a time when church buildings are really kind of irrelevant. You probably walk around Boston, and there's like a church building that's turned into a condo, and something, you know, catchy name for uh, the condo complex. Um, and many of you, if you go to churches in Boston, you probably go to a hotel ballroom, you go to a middle school auditorium. Uh, the church building is not what we're going to talk about. Even though, like, I studied architecture, I love that. We're not going to talk about that. Um, you know, basic Sunday school lesson 101, the church is the people. The people of God. So the place doesn't matter as much as the people and who they are. What does this have to do with the grotto and the earth? Well, it's a metaphor for the Christian church, for God's people today. We are a people under construction. We're not done yet. And we have a builder and architect, Jesus Christ, given us his plans and his word, but Guess what? The church, God's people, are way more important than the Sagrada Familia because Jesus is alive and he sent his Holy Spirit to oversee the construction of this beautiful temple of God, the dwelling place for the Lord that is the church. We're looking tonight at this ascension passage. This might be a Weird place to start uh, because it doesn't mention the church. It talks about the kingdom. But this is actually where the church begins. We're at the beginning of the book of Acts, which is where you learn about the history of the early church. And Jesus is ascending into heaven. The designer and builder of this people, this church, is leaving. What's going on? We're going to learn about at least three things. We're going to learn about misconceptions regarding the people of God or the church. For the kingdom, uh, two promises for Christ's church, and then lastly, one mission. So, three misconceptions, two promises, and one mission. We just celebrated Christmas. Some places uh, we were in Connecticut over the weekend, there was a ton of Christmas stuff to a lot. Maybe you guys in New York, you still have Christmas stuff. Uh, it's all about the baby Jesus, the incarnate God. God uh, became flesh. Now, we're fast-forwarding way ahead to after the cross, after even his resurrection, to the ascension, where he went up into heaven. Now, he appeared over the span of 40 days after his resurrection, and at the end of that time, he took his disciples up to the Mount of Olives, which is a really high point in the city of Jerusalem. And they asked him this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Now Jesus has spent a lot of time teaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but here they were at the end of his time with them and they still didn't get it. 
the commentator John Stott suggests that there are at least three misconceptions present in just that one question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? First, they misconceive that the kingdom of God is a political kingdom. They um, even at the uh, betrayal of Jesus, uh, the disciples had swords. Right? Just like kind of gets his, his ear sliced off. Jesus immediately quells that and kills the man's ear. Um, he's reminding them again here that this is not a political kingdom. The disciples were expecting now's the time to overthrow Rome. Now's the time to set up our boundary. Now's the time for victory. And instead, Jesus' kingdom is at least for now a spiritual kingdom. And his ascension is to the throne of heaven at the right hand of God where he would begin a spiritual work of bringing sinners to himself. This church was an outpost of the kingdom. It was related to the kingdom. It had something to do with the kingdom. And the church's work is not apolitical. It indeed does have political implications, but it's more than merely the church is subversive in that it's allegiance to one authority above all, Christ, who reigns on high. And this means that sometimes it will mean disobeying earthly authority. It's subversive in its spiritual nature. Second, that the kingdom of God is not a nationalistic kingdom. Notice that their question said, restore Israel, and this they had in mind, the descendants of Abraham, they had one people in mind. But if you follow Christ's teaching all the way to the back, and if you read what Jesus says to them here, he says, no, it's not just for us. It's for all people. He says, you're, you're about to go to the ends of the earth. So the kingdom of God is a kingdom for all people, for all cultures, for all languages. There is no um, one that is to be dominant over the other. This is something extraordinary. The third misconception was that the kingdom of God is a present um, and earthly kingdom. This has to do with, with time frame. They said, will you at this time? Like, is now it? Is it going to happen now? And they have this misconception because they really did think that Jesus had done something remarkable. He overcame death. Like, what would stand in his way now? But in his ascension, we see that he was about to do something even more radical, even bigger than they could even imagine. That would encompass all of creation. You see, he had to go up on high because his, his role was to rule over the entire cosmos. His restoration was not just to one part of the world, but to the entire universe. He had to leave this earth because he had to be at the right hand of God to intercede for us, to pray for us, to say, God, send armies in their defense. When you pray, you're praying to Jesus who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He had to go also because he had to leave his spirit. He left the Spirit among us. The kingdom is going to come gradually. It's not at once. 
generations and generations. How long has it been? It's been a long time. It could be longer. But we do know one thing, that Jesus is reigning and that we are his witnesses. When, when the gospel is gone through the entire world, then he will come back. We don't know when that is. The only time frame we're given is soon. <coughs> the next thing. Let's look at these two problems. You see, Jesus isn't just correcting their errors. He's not just about, like, you've got to change your mind, guys. You've got to get your, your head straight. Um, think about coming and being present with them. So the two promises are, one, that Jesus is going to return with it. That, like, him being in the flesh matters. And now we don't see him, but one day we will see him face to face. He will come again. And the other thing is that his spiritual presence will be among us. It's only in the next chapter, Acts 2, that we see Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descending on the children. That's the living God among the people. There's a professor at Bentley University. I don't know if y'all are rivals in that or not. Maybe you don't even know what what, this is. Um, it's in Boston, so it's another university uh, just outside of Boston. And uh, there's this professor named Professor Daniel Everett. Um, so he is an atheist. He, he's a linguist, studies language. Uh, but a long time ago, he was a charismatic uh, evangelical missionary in the jungles of the Amazon. He has a really interesting story. So he was uh, among a, a remote tribe called the Pitahan. And he lived among them for decades just to learn their language. He couldn't even communicate with them. No one had ever uh, written down their language or learned it. So he lived among them for decades just to be able to speak to them. And the reason he was there was to tell them about Jesus. He brought his family there and he, he lived there. And then when it came time, when he finally learned the language and he was talking to some of the people, he started to tell them about Jesus. And they're like, Jesus who? <laughs> like, like, what does he look like? Have you ever met him? Have you ever like shaken his hand? Like, if you were to come up right now, like, what would he say? How what color are his eyes? You know, all these questions. And and, and after a while, uh, Professor Everett started to really doubt the reality of Jesus at all. And, and he went down into a place where he he rejected his faith. He ended up tragic. He got a divorce. But, um, but let's think about that question from the Pidahan. Like, do you know Jesus? Would you be able to recognize him? And I want to ask you, uh, do you have a faith? Do we have a faith that can answer that question? That, that, that can reckon with the fact that we love Jesus, we just sang about Jesus, but he's not here. In the flesh. On the road to Emmaus, shortly before Jesus' ascension, Jesus walked and talked to some of his disciples, and what he was doing was teaching from the word how the Old Testament pointed to his death and resurrection. Uh, I would have loved to have been there for this. And then all of a sudden he went away, and then their eyes were open. They did not recognize that they were with Jesus even though they had walked a long way with them until their eyes were opened. And it says, did our hearts not burn within us? Even Jesus' um, 
dashed the friends that he was resurrected and walked out of that tomb, um, they didn't recognize. The promises made in God's word to face this doubt squarely. Jesus is not present at the moment in the flesh, but he is coming. It does matter that we can say he is still in the flesh with God in heaven. And it also matters that we can say his presence is not known by sight, but it's known by faith. And that is real. His spiritual relationship to us by the Spirit is real. Amen. We can know Jesus, the resurrected Son of God. The other day I was walking in my neighborhood and I heard a familiar buzzing sound. And I looked up and it was a drone. And, and you know, I was, I don't know what I was doing, I was taking a walk and I was a dog, that's what I was just like trying to in my head. But not, not for one moment did I think, that's a UFO, I need to call, I need to call somebody. <laughs> um, not for one moment did I get scared or anything, right? Because I, I knew it was probably some kid just got a drone for Christmas or some realtor doing flyover. Um, you know, I didn't have to see the man or the woman with the remote uh, to know what was going on, right? That there was someone behind me. Mm-hmm. When uh, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus teaches that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. I, I mean, anyone who lives in a hurricane zone knows that you cannot see the wind, but you can see what it does. Mm-hmm. And you can see it's the aftermath of it, right? And in a more positive sense, right? The Holy Spirit, we cannot see it, but we know when it's here. We know when it's passed through. We know when it's done something that is unimaginable apart from the power of God. No one knows where it comes from, but its power and its presence is an undeniable reality to those who have experienced it. So what this means for the church is where God is active and living and at work, of which it can be said nothing other than the presence of God can explain it. But nothing else could change these people the way they've been changed. Nothing else could give them joy in the midst of so much persecution, so much sorrow, other than God. The church of the people of whom it can be said there's no other explanation other than the presence of God. Where God is at work. Don't work. Okay, those are the two promises that Jesus will come again and His Spirit is with us. There's a one mission. There's one mission. They're commissioned. These apostles are commissioned and likewise the, the church to be witnesses to Christ. Now, notice that it doesn't say you'll each receive a unique, individualized mission. You know, just to hold up and spend your whole life figuring out what you're supposed to do. Um, that would be awful. Um, it doesn't say, here are my objectives right now, but hold up, like, I might change it <laughs> at some point. Many of you will have bosses uh, like that, just changing, changing the mission all the time. There was one mission to be witnesses of Christ. That they would 
tell the world about Jesus. The church has always been a place where the gospel is preached, the gospel is shared, the gospel is understood, the gospel is learned out. Jesus is the living architect and builder of the church. His spirit is what is keeping us on mission, united in that. Now, I, I want you to imagine yourself on the, the, the Mount of Olives, and you've just been given that directive, like, okay, go into all the world and proclaim me with my witnesses, right? Um, what would be the first step you take? I, I have no idea. Uh, but we are told that they looked up in the heaven and just stood there somehow. And they're in awe at what they just seen. What in the world just happened? A man just disappeared into the clouds. But also, like, how deflating it must have been. Wait, all of our hopes and dreams just vanished into a cloud. There is a danger in the church being a sky-gazing church. Sky-gazing people where we're just kind of stuck. We don't know what to do. The world is too complicated, so let's retreat from it. Those hard conversations, let's just retreat. Let's just pray. Just me and my Bible, just hold out. Hold out until Jesus returns, right? Um, we can become, you know, in the same way that we can become so earth-focused, we can, on the other hand, become so spiritually focused that we make another error. Right? Jesus is going to come again, but you have a job to do. And guys, the gaze of the church is not upward, but it's downward. They were to go down into the city, be among the people. The gaze of the Christian church is to the lowest it is into the maven. It is into the world. To be salt, to be light, to be the But inwardly, we're still up on them, right? We're still waiting. We're hoping. We're rejoicing in Jesus and his love for us. There are a lot of ways to parse out what it means to be a church on mission. Um, a lot of different theologians and pastors have done this. Um, one list has six, and I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to talk about the last one. And it's unity. Mm-hmm. Unity. Um, I spent a couple of years in Sarajevo, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. And it's a former Yugoslavia. He studied the Balkans. They're just known for just being just a lot of conflict. Right? And so in the 90s, there was a civil war where the the Serbians uh, were um, surrounding the city of Sarajevo, which is a mountainous, um, you know, surrounded by mountains, and they're launching mortar shells into the city, night and day, uh, sniper fire into the city uh, for four years. And the reason they're doing that is because they wanted to was the genocide. They wanted to kill the Bosniak Muslims that were in the city. Now, the Serbians were Orthodox. So their religion was tied to their, their ethnicity. And there's this other group of the Roman Catholic Croats. And 
even to this day, when I was there, you saw it. I mean, you saw the destruction, you saw the Bangal buildings, but you especially saw the, the emotional scars, the deep scars of the people. And the students of with their earliest memories were at a bomb. There was an amazing experience I had. Every Sunday, I'd walk into this church, and it, it wasn't a Catholic church, and it wasn't an Orthodox church, and I just say that, not to say anything about Catholics or Orthodox, but to say that it wasn't uh, associated with any ethnicity, but it was a place, it was a church that believed in Jesus, and there were Serbians in the pew, there were Croats in the pew, and there were Bosnians in the pew. And they all had been transformed by Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they were worshiping and singing psalms, probably exactly the same psalms he sang tonight. They would do this in an expression of their unity because of Jesus. Guys, there's no earthly explanation for that. The only way that kind of unity can occur is if the Spirit of God will show up His presence among them. In what ways can RUF be reflective of this unity? RUF, we sometimes call it the food truck of the church, right? We're just kind of like, we don't have the full menu, right? I'm not doing sacraments, we're not doing the Lord's Supper, we're not doing the altar call, or anything like that. It's not the church, what we do here. Uh, it's a food truck. Uh, we have different menus, right? <laughs> um, how can we be witnesses to Christ on this campus? In our culture that is so divided and polarized, there's so much disunity. How can we be an expression of the unity that can come to Jesus? Let's think about that this semester. Let's pray about that this semester. Do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news of yourself, who has, has come, has died, has been resurrected has ascended and will come again. We thank you that you do not leave us alone, that you are building this church that we speak. We thank you for everyone here, Lord. Would you uh, meet them or we can each say, I know Jesus. Pray with you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.